studies in the life of Christ, and the particular topic is on Jesus and his prayer life. This morning, we're going to see that, that change comes through prayer. Change comes through prayer. The new year is on the way, and one of the things that you hear a lot at the new year is, I'm going to, and you can fill in the blanks. This year, I'm going to, and it might last for a week, two weeks, a month, but it usually doesn't last. We usually don't go through with the I'm going to. The world is looking for change, and they're hoping in this election, there will be a change the way they want it to be. Every election we see, they, everybody wants change. Everybody wants change. The thing is, they don't know what they want. And what they do want is temporal. It's not really what they want. They're looking for change. They want change, but they don't know where to find it. You know, many relationships, they want change. Many times in marriage, you know, a husband or a wife, they, they're about ready to call it quits because they want change. But they want the other person to change. You're the problem. You need to change. And so they're praying by, by words that, you know, uh, in their minds that they want, they want change. And, and, it, and it, it doesn't happen a lot of the time. Because the, the, people think that it's, it takes something easy you know they look for a a magic potion or a magic pill or wave a wand over somebody or someone or some situation and it's going to get better the thing is is that change begins with you it begins with the individual and real change purposeful change comes through prayer In the last year of the Lord's earthly ministry, before he was crucified, an extraordinary event took place on a mountain in northern Palestine. And we know the event to be the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And it was a display of God's glory in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Peter refers to the transfiguration as historical proof of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's hard to imagine what Jesus looked like when he was transfigured or changed in his form. The gospel writers speak of his face becoming bright like the sun and his clothes being dazzling white. Peter explains that God gave him honor and glory. It was a momentary change in his appearance, or the manifestation of his humanity changed to the manifestation of his deity. He changed from man to God for that temporary moment. This transfiguration emphasized that even though Jesus walked on this earth as a man, he was in fact still all God. The transfiguration said that though when we, see, when we shall see him, that is, in his humanity, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That still being the case, he is still all God. The transfiguration also showed that Jesus Christ demonstrated great humility when he took upon himself flesh and blood. 
the incarnation when God came down and became man in order to be our Redeemer. And in our text this morning, we're going to look at the transfiguration, especially from the perspective of prayer. Since prayer is the subject of these series of studies, and prayer was a very obvious part of the transfiguration. In all three synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this this transfiguration miracle. But it's only Luke who tells us that Jesus was praying during this time when it happened. Luke specifies that it was while Jesus was praying that that the transfiguration actually took place. Now, to study about where Jesus was praying when the transfiguration took place, Luke 9, 28 says this, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. Mark says that the place where Jesus is praying was on a mountain. Mark says it was a high mountain in Mark 9, verse 2. Even though the exact place of this mountain isn't told to us, it's not given here. Tradition has been for many years that this mountain was was Mount Tabor in central Palestine or Canaan. But seeing how Jesus was ministering in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi just before the transfiguration and that Mount Hermon is a lot closer to Caesarea Philippi than Mount Tabor is, And that the peak of Mount Tabor was a fortress, which meant going into the mountain would certainly not give privacy to the Lord. And Mark says that privacy was the cause for his praying. So for that reason, it's now generally believed that Mount Hermon was the place where the transfiguration took place. Now, Mount Hermon is located 35 miles north of the Sea of Galilee in the land that's part of Syria. Mount Hermon has three main peaks, and the highest peak is 9,000 feet high. The snow-capped peaks of the mountain can be seen from much of Palestine, even from the Dead Sea area. And the melting snow and the springs of the mountain are what form the source of the Jordan River. One commentator says that Mount Hermon is still the glory of Palestine from whose heights one can view the whole of the land. It was a fit place for the transfiguration. Mark says in Mark 9, 2, that Jesus led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. Mark tells us here that the place of the transfiguration where Jesus prayed was a place of solitude. And here again, we have in Scripture the emphasis by Jesus on private prayer. Now, Jesus doesn't give a lot of emphasis to public prayer. It's private prayer that was more prominent in his life. It was more obvious in his life. Now, that doesn't mean that public prayer is wrong. It doesn't mean that public prayer is bad. And at times, Jesus did pray in public on some occasions. But his emphasis, what we see most of, what's most prominent in Jesus' prayer life was private prayer. And it teaches us by his example, the great need for private prayer in our life. One-on-one, you and God. And it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to engage in much earnest prayer that is serious prayer when we're not alone with God. Now, in another excerpt from George Mueller's prayer life in his book, It said that he saw that the so-called work of the Lord 
had tempted him to substitute action for meditation and communion. And it happens a lot in ministry. Our service and, 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 our, and the activities that we're involved in many times take the place or rob us of that meditation and communion that we need to have with him. Here's what the excerpt said. Again, A.T. Pearson was the one who wrote the book based on the journals that George Mueller left of his life and his ministry. He wrote, he, that is George Mueller, had neglected that still hour with God, which supplies to spiritual life alike its breath and its bread. No lesson is more important for us to learn, yet how slow we are to learn it. That for the lack of habitual seasons set apart for devout meditation upon the word of God and for prayer, nothing else will compensate. We are prone to think, for example, that converse, that is conversation with Christian brethren and the general round of Christian activity, especially when we are much busied with preaching the word and visits to inquiring or needy souls make up for the loss of aloneness with God in a secret place. Again, you know, a lot of times we think that, you know, we, we have a lot, we talk a lot with Christians. We have this fellowship with Christians. You know, we do a lot of service in the, with the Lord that that compensates that alone time with God. And we're prone to think that that's, you know, that, that, that that's a good substitute, which the point that George Mueller is making is that it's not. He says, we hurry to a public service with just a few minutes of private praying, allowing precious time to be absorbed in social pleasures, restrained from withdrawing from others by a false delicacy, when to, accuse ourselves, when to excuse ourselves for needful communion with God and His Word have been perhaps the best witness possible to those whose company was holding us unduly. In other words, those that we hung around, that he's talking about those that he was hanging around with and those that he was working with and, and all of this, this con- conversation that he was having with them in the busyness of ministry, he said, I would have probably been a better witness to them if I would have taken off and had that quiet time with God. He would have been an example. He says, how often we rush, rush from one public engagement to another without any prayer interval for renewing our strength in waiting on the Lord as though God cared more for the quantity than the quality of our service. Here, Mr. Mueller had the grace to detect one of the biggest dangers of a busy man in this day of insane hurry. He saw that if we are to feed others, we must be fed. And that even public and united exercises of praise and prayer can never supply that food which is dealt out to the believer only in the closet. The shut-in place with its closed door and open window where he meets with God alone. Now when Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, there are both earthly and heavenly people with Jesus at this time of prayer. This doesn't take away from the privacy of praying. Because you see, in the case of earthly people, Jesus took them with him to be a part, to get away from the multitudes. And the heavenly visitors didn't come until Jesus was transfigured. Now, Luke 9, 28. Luke tells us he took, that is, Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Peter, John, and James. These three disciples, they were a special group. They were the inner circle of Jesus Christ. Now, 
Not only did Jesus take these three disciples with him when the transfiguration took place, but Jesus also took them with him to the house of Jairus when he healed his daughter in Mark 5. He also took these three disciples with him further into the Garden of Gethsemane than he did the other disciples to pray on the night of his betrayal and his arrest in Mark 14. What was it that made these three men a special group? Did they just brown nose Jesus a lot? And he thought, oh, these guys really like me. Did they do certain favors for him? Did they just go out of their way to do things for him that made them stand out from the other disciples? No. What, Je- what Jesus noticed and what he will always see, it was their extraordinary devotion and dedication to him. For example, we saw John leaning on Christ's bosom in John chapter 13. We see Peter's great confession of faith in Christ, which included the words, Lord, to whom shall we go? In Luke 6. And then James, along with John, they got very upset when Jesus wasn't well received in Samaria after the transfiguration. Now, the way John and James and John reacted to the people who didn't receive Christ after the transfiguration was wrong because it was too violent. And Jesus rebuked them for their violent response. But you see, their being upset when Jesus wasn't honored showed the Lord their strong devotion to him. So it's not surprising that these three men became giants in the faith, in the early church, and they were attentive to prayer. They were praying men. James was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred. James was killed by the sword of Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, um, who ruled Palestine when Jesus was born. Peter, he was a great leader of the early church, as the book of Acts shows us. And John, the apostle John, he was the last disciple to die. He was exiled to Patmos for his faith in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. In his later years, John still continued to serve Jesus there on Patmos by writing the book of Revelation. It was the superior devotion and dedication of these three disciples that had a lot to do with their special spiritual privileges like experiencing the transfiguration. You see, if we're not devoted and dedicated to Christ and we're not obedient to Christ and we're not learning and applying the things that Christ shows us and teaches us, why should he show us more? Why should he teach us more? You see, Jesus doesn't take people apart with him to pray who aren't devoted to him. When Jesus wants privacy with his own people, And when Jesus wants to do some earnest praying, he chooses the most dedicated of people. Not only was it at this, not only was this true at his transfiguration, but it was also true when it came to his praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was arrested. In Luke 9, verse 30, Luke tells us, Behold, two men talked with Jesus who were Moses and Elijah. And because we're focusing on the prayers of Jesus here this morning, the thing that we want to especially mention here about these heavenly men, Elijah and Moses, uh, who are part of the uh, transfiguration scene, is that both of these Old Testament giants were men of prayer. And since the transfiguration was inseparably, inseparably connected with prayer, 
It's very appropriate and significant that these two heavenly guests, Moses and Elijah, at the transfiguration were great men of prayer in their earthly lifetimes, in their ministries. The first Old Testament giant mentioned here at the transfiguration was Moses. Moses spent a lot of time alone communing with God. And furthermore, after spending a considerable amount of time with God uh, on Mount Sinai in the early days after the exodus from Egypt, Moses' face glowed. Here, at the transfiguration, Jesus' countenance glowed with the glory of God. So both the glowing Moses after communicating or communing with God in the mount and the glory of Christ after communing with God in the mount, they are appropriately connected together in the transfiguration scene. The second Old Testament giant mentioned in the transfiguration scene was the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a man that was known for his praying. James tells us in James 5, 17 through 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Notice he was a common, ordinary man. He had a nature just like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah could do some powerful praying, which made him a suitable subject to be there at the transfiguration, again, with the praying Jesus. Now, Luke tells us in Luke 9, 29, as Jesus prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. A very significant thing, or fact, I should say, about this transfiguration, which we're, uh, we're emphasizing here, is that it took place, notice, while Jesus was praying. And that it happened while Jesus was praying shows the great power of prayer. This shows us the evidence of the power of prayer. Now, let's look at the different changes that took place in the transfiguration. We're going to look at the three synoptic gospels, again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they're all a little bit different in what they say about the transfiguration and the changes. The three gospels... Once again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us that the changes took place in two ways in regards to Jesus. It changed his countenance and it changed his clothes. It changed his appearance and it changed his clothing. They were dramatically changed in in the transfiguration. What that says to me is that It changed his countenance. It changed his face. It changed something about the way he looked. It changed his clothing. It changed his outward appearance as well. And isn't that what the the, the new birth is supposed to do? Change our countenance? You know, to, 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 to change from, you know, just looking bummed out and lost and just not knowing what I'm doing and where I'm going to, I now have purpose in life. I have joy in my life. I have direction in my life. And that should be seen on our faces. And, and, and I, I, I can't remember who said it and mentioned, but it's, it, 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 he gives the idea, or, or I get the idea from what he says. That he says, so many Christians walk around looking down and out instead of looking up and looking around with so much joy. 
We don't give a good witness a lot of the time. And yet it says here it changed his, his, his countenance and it changed his clothing, his outward appearance as well. They were dramatically changed in the transfiguration. Matthew says in Matthew 72, his face shone like the sun. Luke tells us in Luke 9, 29, the appearance of his face was altered. It was changed. Luke's report is, is, is very general. And it only says that there was a change in his face, in the Lord's face. The Jesus, the Christ, who had been living for over 30 years in ordinary human form, was now, to a degree, seen in the blazing brilliance of God. Hebrews says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Jesus Christ is the, is the express image image of God. If, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the way that he lives, in the way that he talks, in the way that he acts, everything. He says, I am the express, I am the mirror image of my Father. And from within himself, in a way that defies total description and, and defies total explanation i mean there's no words for it there's no way that it can be described jesus's glory was manifested in front of peter james and john this is the greatest confirmation of jesus's deity yet in his life and here more than any other time jesus revealed himself as he truly is the son of god matthew on the other hand is more specific than luke is and described the change Matthew said Jesus' face was shining like the sun. Shining like the sun. Shining like the sun says that the radiance of Jesus' face was not the reflection of another light. That light came from within Christ. This speaks of the divine nature of Christ, and it's a contrast to the shining of Moses' face after he had spent time with God on Mount Sinai. Moses' face only reflected the glory of God. It was like the moon which reflected the sun. But Jesus' face shone like the sun. It wasn't a reflection of any other light. The shining wasn't a reflection. The shining came from within our Lord. And Jesus is truly the light of the world, John tells us in 8.12. Now, if you remember uh, what it says in Revelation, in the New Jerusalem where the saints are going to spend all eternity with him there. The Bible says this in Revelation 21, 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it because the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. Can you imagine? We're just seeing a, a, a momentary, momentary glimpse here of that brilliance, of that glory, of that light. But in, in, in eternity, in the New Jerusalem, it's going to be totally exposed and it's going to light up the new jerusalem won't need a moon won't need a sun because our lamb of god is going to be the light and some of that light is what's shining here in the transfiguration not only did his face shining like the sun indicate that the changes were from within but so does the meaning of the word translated transfiguration the word transfiguration 
is where we get our English word metamorphosis. And that is what happens when one is born again. There's a a metamorphosis. And it involves more than a change from the outside. The glory of God, the glory of deity, which shone from Jesus in the transfiguration wasn't just a mere reflection, but it was something that came from within him. Why? Because he was God. Paul said in Timothy that we dwell, we, 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 we know a God that dwells in an inapproachable light. An inapproachable light. We can't, we can't approach that light in our fleshly bodies. It would kill us. His glory is so great. That's what he told Moses. You can't see me and live, Moses. I'll show you a little bit of my glory. That's the, the glory of God. Matthew also says in Matthew 17 too, his clothes became as white as the light. Mark says in Mark 9, 3, his his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Like the Shekinah glory manifestations of the Old Testament. God here portrayed himself to, to human eyes in a form of light so dazzling bright and so overwhelming that, that they, couldn't, they could barely look at it. The light here portrayed Jesus' glory and his majesty. The Bible tells us more about the effect of the transfiguration on the clothes than on his countenance. But the clothes would take up more of the view to the three disciples than just the face. There would be more to see in the clothes than in his face. Putting together what the three Gospels tell us, we learn two things about the effect that the transfiguration had on Christ's clothes. First of all, Mark tells us in chapter 9, verse 3, his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. They were so white that no launderer could create or clean clothes to make them that white. White speaks of purity. It speaks of his holiness. This unequaled whiteness, this whiteness like no other speaks of Christ's absolute holiness, his purity. There is no sin whatsoever in him. Never has there been, never is, never will be. He is holy. Sinless perfection. Divine holiness exceeds all other holiness. His is true holiness. The second thing that we see in the clothing is Luke tells us in 929, the words white and glistening, that his clothes were white and glistening. White and glistening are translated from one Greek word, which we find only here in the New Testament. And the word means to flash out like lightning, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon. The word white and glistening means flash out like lightning. So you see, the clothes weren't just white, like no other whiteness ever seen before, but the whiteness was alive. It sparkled, it flashed, it glistened in a very noticeable way. This heavenly radiance was similar to the radiance that was displayed by the angel. Remember at the empty tomb when Jesus resurrected? It would be awesome and inspiring to see. The brightest glitter, the most sparkling things that this world has to show us, has to offer us, is darkness. 
it pales in comparison to the dazzling glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great changes at Christ's transfiguration is a wonderful encouragement to us to pray. It's how change comes about. These changes show us the tremendous changing power of prayer. That's why so many times things don't change because we, we, we aren't willing to take the time and make and, and spend the, and, and be persevering in prayer. You know, a brother asked me earlier, one of the, the first, why is it so hard to pray? It's against our nature. You know, it's against our flesh. I got to stop. I got to take time out of my day or whatever I'm doing. And I got to separate myself and I got to go spend time in prayer. And it's difficult. My flesh doesn't want to do it. And remember, we saw the example of Moses praying uh, in the battle with Israel and the, and the Amalekites. As long as Moses' arms were up, Israel would win the battle. But when his arms began to get heavy and they began to go down, the Amalekites began to win. So Aaron and Ur had to go up to the mountain. They had to hold up Moses' arms so that, you know, we could, so that Israel would win the battle. And as long as Moses' arms were up, Israel prevailed over the Amalekites. Praying is hard. Mentally, and it could be physically, if we persevere and we spend time in prayer. But that's what's going to change the things in our life and other people's life that are so important. The great changes that Christ transfiguration again is what brought about the changing that that was witnessed there that's the changing power of prayer and that the transfiguration of jesus took place while he was praying says that true prayer to god can bring about a transformed life it can bring forth a transformed life paul said in romans 12 2 and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word be conformed refers to an outward expression that doesn't reflect what is within. It's an outward thing. And it's used to pretend to be somebody or to be somebody, something. Conformed is putting on an act specifically by following a prescribed pattern or scheme. The word conformed also carries the idea of being temporary, not permanent, and it's unstable. Being conformed is something we allow to be done to us. And Paul said, don't be conformed. Don't be conformed to this world or the ways of this world or the things that this world, don't copy the things that the world does. And you know what? When Paul said, do not be conformed, he wasn't saying, hey, I got an idea. I got a suggestion for you. Do not be conformed is a command. It's a command. And when God gives a command, that means two things. You can obey it or disobey it. Plain and simple. It's a choice. It's a choice. It's a matter of choice. Do I want to do what God says I to do or do I not want to do it? 
J.B. Phillips says this. He translates. Uh, let, me, let me go back a bit. Again, talking about Paul when he said, do not be conformed. And it's a, and it's a command, not a suggestion. Paul's gentle but firm command is that we are not, notice, we are not to allow ourselves to be conformed to this world. We are not to masquerade as a worldly person for whatever the reason. J.B. Phillips translates this phrase, uh, Romans 12, 2, like this. He says, do not let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And oh, how easy we allow the world to squeeze us into their mold. In other words, we are not to, we must not pattern ourselves or allow ourselves to be patterned after the God of this world. And we are to stop becoming victims of the world. Because God says we're more than conquerors. We allow Satan to make us victims and then we make the excuses, oh, my flesh is weak. We know that. The Bible says so. He says, but I am strong. I can't do this. I know you can't, but I can because all things are possible in Christ who strengthens me. You see, we have no excuse. Well, this is the way God may be. Yeah, but when you're born again, you become a new creature in Christ and now things are going to change. There are no excuses. Paul said in Romans 1, man is without excuse. So what excuse are you going to find to tell God on that day when you stand before him? Well, Lord, I just couldn't do it. Really? How many times did I show you you could do it? We must not become victims of the world. We are to be victors. We are to stop allowing ourselves to be fashioned after the present evil world that we live in. Because we are not of this world. The New Testament scholar Kenneth Wiest paraphrased this clause. Stop assuming an outward expression which is patterned after this world. An expression which does not come from nor is representative of what you are in your inner being as a regenerated child of God. And Paul goes on to say you should rather be transformed. It means in outward appearance. As we saw Jesus in, in, in his face, in the countenance of his face change, in his clothing change. It's also a command to allow ourselves, notice, to be changed outwardly into conformity to our redeemed inner natures. We are without excuse. The Holy Spirit makes this transformation by the renewing of the mind. The outward transformation is, re- is affected by an inner change in the mind. And the Holy Spirit's way of transforming our minds is through the Word of God. The transformed and the renewed mind is the mind that's saturated with and controlled by the Word of God. It's the mind that spends as little time as possible even with the necessary things of earthly livings or earthly living. The cares of this life. And spends as much time as possible with the things of God. Paul said it's the mind that's set on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Whether good or bad. Listen, whether good or bad, anything happens in, that happens in our lives, our immediate, almost instinctive response should be biblical. Whether it's good, whatever happens in our life, whether good or bad, 
our immediate response should be biblical. The word transformed in Romans is the same word translated transfigured in Matthew 17, 2 and Mark 9, 2, the word that we're looking at. Transformed means transfigured. If you want a transformed, if you want a, 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 a transformed life, instead of one that is conformed to the world, one of the things that you will have to do and do it well is pray. Real close communion with God always imparts to the countenance of the one who has truly entered into this communion with with God. They will be imparted with a new and strange beauty. New and strange to the world, but now new and strange to us. Because it's the reflection of of who we are in Christ that should be seen. In closing, Alan Redpath said this. And this is what I had shared in a bit earlier. He said, how often do we meet professing Christian people today that have no power in witness? No radiance in their faces. No sweetness in their personalities. No reality in their spiritual lives. They are indwelt by the Spirit of God, but they are not anointed. The Holy Spirit is in them, but not upon them in power and reality. No radiance in their faces. Charles Spurgeon said, If we would glow with the glory of Christ, we must be in much prayer. Because it will give us the power to glow for God. Prayer can transfigure a person's countenance and character. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful lesson, God. Lord, help our countenance and our character to be transformed, God. Lord, let us not walk around, Lord, like we're just bummed out, Father, or lost or hopeless, God. Lord, Christians should be the happiest people on earth. Not because of what they have or don't have. But because, Lord, we know you. And that's what Jesus said. Not to be happy because of what we've done or, or, or the things we've accomplished. But that because we know you, God. We know you. And Father, that's the most important thing for any breathing, living human being, God. To know you. Nothing else matters. So many needs, so many things that need to be changed in life. but because of the unwillingness to read God's word and to pray and to submit to God's word. Things go on as they are. And it's it's needless. Maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself in that situation. Nothing's changing. 
Nothing's getting better. It's not a matter of getting what I need or what I want. It's not a matter of getting bigger or better stuff. It's a matter of changing within. It's a matter of taking on Christ and begin begin looking at life through God's eyes, not your eyes. The worship team's going to lead us in a time of worship. And if God's word is spoken to your heart, you know there needs to be change. And you may want to change. And you may promise, I'm going to change without Christ. Is doomed to fail. It's not going to last long. And you'll be right back where you started. Because Jesus said, apart from me, without me, you can do nothing. But in Christ, all things are possible. As the worship team leads us in this song, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to, you want to make real change. Not just talk about it. It starts with Christ. As we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.